you have been friends for 20 years, a little over 20 years. At what point did you decide to work together professionally on this film? <laughs> on this film? Yeah. Uh, I asked him. Yeah. I just said, hey, would you make a movie about the Stooges? And he said, oh, okay. And that was <laughs> about a, seven years yeah, ago. Right. Like it was that. about seven, eight years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And the music of the Stooges changed things for you. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I'm from a suburb of Akron, Ohio, so I'm from a kind of also sort of post-industrial world. And uh, for me, when I was young, you know, my the things that spoke to me were the Stooges, the, the MC5, and then the, the light from the east was like the Velvet Underground. Mm -hmm. Um, I was a, you know, I, I, I loved Jimi Hendrix and I listened to the Buffalo Springfield West Coast, that kind of stuff, but the stuff that spoke right to me was that, uh, really the Detroit stuff, you know, so I don't know, it's just ingrained, it's part of my DNA, you know, it was a gift to me, so that was big, big inspiration, you know, that kind of sound was very different. And uh, I'm going to turn it over. There's, I, I think we can probably get a question from everybody. We'll start with Sean. Yes, go ahead. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. I'm really deaf. No problem. Sean from H&B Canada. Why did you want a, why did you want a Stooges movie to exist? Uh, the, we've been fully Stooged as in terms of concert films. There are four major ones, two with each version of the band. Uh, but we hadn't been covered from the perspective of life by a proper auteur. So I knew that if I could swing that, there was going to be a viewpoint that was going to be much better and greater than if you've got a bunch of guys in a band or and their uh, corporate handler going, okay, well now what we want to get across here is, you know, or whatever. That was the idea. Give it to uh, give it to somebody with their own vision who who knows how to make a, a movie. Uh, Charles from Billboard, um, can you talk a little bit about um, just going through your archives, especially like about what going through your archives, the early photos, and I really like the whole part about like your parents and they were supportive and you took over that trailer and you know because a lot of musicians don't have that support from their parents. She's asking about and the archive footage? Yeah and, and photos. And, and photos. Did you have a lot of that stuff? No that's funny I, I didn't have it uh, but I knew some of the people. Uh, Kathy Ashton I think helped <laughs> and there did, were some yeah. Michigan based photographers and old colleagues of mine, including uh, Don Swickerath from the Iguanas, Michael Earlwine from the Prime Movers, with whom I still had a way to connect. Uh, Tom Copy, uh, a, a Michigan-based photographer, had a lot of stuff. A fellow named Craig, Daniel Craig, is it? You, you Glenn. Glenn. Glenn Craig. Glenn Craig. All these people. Uh, but no, all I had. Somebody gave me once, years later, a photo of the original group playing at Soldier Field in uh, Chicago. It was on a bill with Funkadelic. And um, 
I remember because we were trying to hit them up for some junk, and they kept saying, here, take this snuff. It's practically the same thing. And so we have brown noses when we went out to do the gig. I said, really? He said, yeah, man, you'll feel great. You won't know the difference. And so in the picture, we're playing, and there's just one guy walking sideways in front of the stage, just like, I'm going to just walk in front, and... Nothing, everything's going to be cool as long as I don't look. You know? and, and so I had that photo, and I painted that. So I had my painting of it. That's all I had from the group, from the early group. And that was it. it must have been fun for you to see the film and see all that. What's that? Yeah. It must have been fun for you to see the film. It was, soup, it was really wow. It has been really wow, and I kept asking uh, Ariel. Um, yes, Ariel de Saint Paul. Is she back here? there? And, hey, and Carter Logan. I don't see any better than I hear. <laughs> hey, Carter. <laughs> Carter's the real. I still soul. function internally. <laughs> but Carter's like the sole producer of this film. Ariel worked her ass off getting all these uh, rights to these things and substituting others when we couldn't get them. And I have to really say. Uh, Afonso Gonsalves and Adam Kernitz, the editors of this film, are the ones who made these things work. And I would just say things like, well, I don't know, man, to illustrate this, just find some sci-fi clip or, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. they, yeah, exactly. they would find all this stuff and then Ariel would have to clear it and then we'd get all these photos and haggle with the photographers and then find out well, they're going to charge more than we have. Take all them out and get some other <laughs> yeah. ones. And like, what? You know? But really, what we had, really, is the people behind the scenes crafted this film. The group was kind of seat of the pants, too. So it kind of works. It kind of fits. I know? think so. And I think that, you know, the editors really were both big, big Stooges fans. Helps, and yeah. so they really wanted to get to celebrate the kind of messiness of the band, yeah. the kind of coloring outside the lines, the, the fact that this is not, these guys are not, uh, I don't know, this isn't technical proficiency that is being shown to you. This is like primitive, pure, raw beauty of rock and roll, you know? So anyway, we tried to make the film and the Stooges are funny and irreverent and wild, and we wanted to get make a film sort of with those things in it, you know. And Harry Parch appears in the film, which is great. Yes, you know? and I love when he says, "And I wanted the the instruments to be beautiful." Yes, yeah, yeah. I yeah. got so, yeah. so moved. He yeah. meant physically beautiful. Yes, you know, yeah, and they are. At. Yeah, yeah, they're doing his stuff now at Lincoln Center. You know, he made it, Harry. Harry Parch. Yeah, I was just wondering uh, what you guys hope young bands learn from this documentary. What do you think young bands will learn from the documentary? Will or should? I think, I don't think it's about learning. Usually it's about hope. Hope and uh, also, I, I remember for me, identification. Like I would listen to Bo Diddley and I knew, that, okay, there were intricacies in Bo Diddley and strengths that I, I was never going to approach those things. But there were also touch points of simplicity and a mountainous heroism. It's 
Oh, diddly. And for me, I, I knew, you know, that um, many years after his heyday, I would run into to Bo Diddley on an airplane or something, and he was still Bo Diddley. He still, you know, he didn't have the society behind him, but he still had his hat, his sheriff's badge, his roll bag, and he was Bo Diddley. He kept calling me Ziggy, though. <laughs> I was really, so Ziggy, I got an idea for a rock and roll vampire film. <laughs> You know, so, so I, I think it would be, it's kind of like that, you know. I, I, I meet young musicians who say, well, yeah, you know, just listening to your stuff, it made us feel like it wasn't so far away. We could do it. We didn't want to do what you do, but we could do it. I think, I think there's some of that, you know. Can I say something, too, on that? And, and Bo Diddley's a great example. Um, for me, the film's not trying to teach anybody anything. It's celebrating something, a gift, you know, of, that the Stooges gave us. But to me, you know, this idea, Bo Diddley's a great example, because when Ron Ashton died, I read a little obituary in Guitar Player magazine that was respectful of his impact, but a little bit snooty about his primitive technique, right? Mm -hmm. Well, technique is, when you make your own technique, like Bo Diddley, for right. example, to me, that's where, I mean, okay, proficiency can be a path to something, and it can be a path to nothing. Mm -hmm. And if, when you find your own technique, and the, the Ron Ashtons of the world, these are people that give you their own way of doing it, and because they, something comes out of their soul. And to me, that's the... There are millions of kids in their bedrooms that can shred their way to hell on a guitar, and it doesn't mean anything, you know? So that's what I think you can learn, is it comes from somewhere that is about expression, not about showing off or, or following the mainstream of what is technique. And nothing against technically proficient musicians, but it's what you do with it, and Bo Diddley, he made up his own whole fucking beat, his own rhythm. I mean, and he is one of the greatest gifts for me too, Bo Diddley. You know, Gloria. Uh, love the film. Um, Iggy, can you talk a little bit about um, in the film? You, you look at Clarabelle the Clown, Miles Davis, all kinds of different influences. About what, darling? Uh, Clarabelle the Clown. Uh, Clarabelle, oh yeah, yeah. Clarabelle the Clown. Yeah. Well, yeah, okay, sure. It was like it was like this. I was living with my mom and dad in a a trailer. It was not any longer than from where I am to where you are, and I slept on the shelf above the kitchenette, and I would lay there sometimes, and they'd let me watch Howdy Doody, and I watch it on a TV. It was about this deep, and the screen's about that big, black and white. And uh, first there was Buffalo Bob, right, who looked just like Timothy Leary. It was the same thing. It was the buckskin fridge jacket and the affable, hi, kids, you know. And then the kids would go, ah! ah! It was like full assault, right? And then he would always say, no cracks from the PETA gallery. That was the, to calm him down. And then he had these various people. Phineas T. Bluster was like the Donald Trump of the program, right? The mean old guy with a, like an authority and money and everything. And then there was Clarabelle the Clown. 
and Clarabelle would come tear ass and on, and he was totally like, yeah, and he was like manic, you know, and I was watching him, and Howdy Doody was supposed to be the star, but he just sat there, you know, because he was a puppet. All he could do was roll his, his head. But Clarabelle, I thought, wow, that's ex that, it was exciting. I liked the mania in Clarabelle. I really did, and I didn't realize till I saw him in this film years later just how, I mean, that's an insane performance. It was, it was physically reckless. He's, and I learned some, I think it might have been Ariel who told me that's Bob Keeshan. It was Captain Kangaroo. <laughs> yeah. If what happened? I guess there's not as much money in being Clarabelle. <laughs> and later it'd be like, just take a couple of Valium. <laughs> right. Calm down. <laughs> right. Hi, Mr. Greegees. Hi, Captain Kangaroo. Everything's cool. <laughs> we got a steady gig here. <laughs> That's that. But I really, the show made a, it was my first, show where I ever saw where okay this is how the audience is and this is the MC and these are the characters and you know yeah uh, Iggy uh, and, and Jim just love the show Jim I thought it was fascinating how you positioned the band come here please <laughs> I thought it was fascinating how you positioned the band as being as important as they were right off the top and I'd love to hear something about that but Iggy uh, you've already mentioned B.B. King and you've mentioned Funkadelic uh, jazz ends up playing this big role at the beginning of your career, yeah. and we hear about Coltrane and Miles Davis and James Brown's band. So, talk to me about how jazz affected the early days of the Stooges. Well, the the jazz bows, the the great ones. The, the the first thing about it again, sort of like with Bo Diddley. Look, with Bo, if you if you scour closely interviews with the two best white interpreters living of black guitar music who still are Keith Richards and Ron Wood that you'll find you'll find quotes about the intricacy and delicacy of his playing that's one part right uh, or if you listen to the Stones cover of Mona how Keith Richards approaches a little more romantic take of both things that's one side the other side is Bo had the simple approach the simple framework, just the boom, and the and the girls with the guitars, and wow, you know, okay. When I heard the Love Supreme, Coltrane is a great enough and secure enough musician that at that point in his career, he was able to base a whole composition on a four-note bass line that I could play before I even learned guitar, just. And you had this with Pharaoh Sanders. You had this with a certain period when Miles Davis got sick of doing three-piece suit music. And he started dressing a little looser. And you hear albums like Jack Johnson, On the Corner, Bitches Brew, whoa. You know, again, I thought, well, wow, with a loose framework, Archie Shepp. There are a lot, there's a lot you can do, and maybe we could adapt some of the spirit of this music. Uh, and then also you just listen to the, the elegance and the, the way those guys played. It, it's spiritual music. It's spiritual music. It, it reaches up and out 
to no one in particular, but to another place. You know, that's that's what I would say. I think it inspired us. And it was amazing that the other three guys in the group, I mean, I never heard, I, I brought these records to them. I never heard, I don't want to listen to that jazz. They were all instantly receptive to the musicality of anything I brought them, anything. I don't know why, it's just the kind of way, oh, oh okay, you know, when you, you hear it and some of the uh, openness of the first two records. The third record is different. That's a very, uh, that's sort of a, a rock permutation. And Mark, do, well, there's a question for oh, Jim and, as and well. Jim, yeah, so. as well, if, if I'm allowed to follow up, thank you very much. And Jim, right off the top, you position the Stooges as one of the most important bands really ever in, in the arc of rock and roll as we know it today. And I thought that was a pretty bold position to take off the top. Did that feel, was that a conscious effort to say, hey, this, I'm telling you this? Uh, well, that's my opinion. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm just one person, but for me, that's my opinion. And, uh, yeah, to me, the Stooges are that primalness and that mixture of those things. And, in a way, the Stooges, it's hard to describe them, but there's a kind of uh, blues-based, psychedelicized, slowed-down rockabilly with avant-garde jazz mixed in. Like, what the hell is this, you know? But uh, it's, you know, it speaks to me forever, Stooges for, forever, you know, that this is a very, it's, it's personal, but to me this film is a, it's not an innovative piece of cinema, it is intended to be a, a kind of love letter, it's a fan film in a way, because I love the Stooges, you know, it's a celebration. So that's its intention, and that's my feeling. And those of us who made it, from Carter to our editors, all of us feel that strongly, you know. I think they're going to convert a lot of people. Thanks. We just have time for one or two more questions, so I didn't get to you. I'll go there and there. Go ahead. Iggy, can you talk about the reunion and what that meant to you and the guys as far as maybe getting uh, some recognition and adulation while the band was still together that you didn't get the first go in the first go around. Yeah, it was huge, and uh, for some reason, uh, it still dredges up uh, certain emotions that had to do with the, I would say, the unprecedented aggressive rejection of the group in its early stages we had we had allies with these the stoner youth kids 16 17 in high school were already destined to drop out tended to like us and intellectuals the ones the very 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 the very 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 group liked us and uh, not not many people in them in the middle and every once in a while, we would have a, an important ally, especially like the MC5. You know, so it's a group that could, they could do, they could do what a show band does, 
and yet they understood what we were doing and were happy to have us augment their shows. And uh, also there was a guy at the psychedelic ballroom, Russ Gibb, who kind of thought we were interesting. And I, I think it helped at that level. Alice Cooper said of me that I was a gimmick for the group. That's kind of true. He said, well, <laughs> you know, you need a gimmick, and Iggy was their gimmick. I, well, he I, did a damn good job. Well, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly, exactly. But I fulfilled probably some of that for some people, to at least enough to get us a gig, you know. So, yeah, it meant a, it meant a lot, uh, it, but it would only come up certain ways, maybe if I'm asked a question as direct as that in a setting like this, or just in certain ways at certain times. It was amazing. Amazing. 